Hello. As promised, I am starting off my new Substack regime with a reading from a book. Uh, I'll be doing this every Monday, uh, reading something uh, from a book or an essay or a poem or whatever else that I uh, that I quite like and want to share uh, and comment on, perhaps. Uh, as I said uh, in my post announcing this new regime, I'm not entirely sure if I'm any good at reading aloud, but I do enjoy it, and I do enjoy subjecting people to do it, to it. So you are my uh, new victims. Um, the book that I'm going to read from today, I'm going to read um, a few passages from Richard Dawkins's uh, "Unweaving the Rainbow," which is his book-length repost to the accusation that science um, destroys the beauty and wonder of the world by explaining it. Uh, the title comes from Keats, who uh, accused Newton of destroying the beauty of the rainbow by explaining it scientifically. Um, I think this is, I mean, Unweaving the Rainbow is one of my favourite books in general, but it's also my favourite book. Uh, of Dawkins's, uh, I think it's also one of the most underrated of his books and certainly one of the least well-known, which I think is a shame because I think it puts to bed a lot of the uh, accusations that are slung at him of being some sort of cold, uh, machine-like uh, destroyer of of a uh, illusion who wants to strip away all of the warmth uh, of the world uh, you know, this book is deeply, deeply poetic and it's a great argument for the beauty of science and the, the scientific way of understanding the world. Uh, in my view, the uh, the person who fails to thrill at uh, the scientific view of the world is, frankly, a philistine. Um, I think they should be very much ashamed of themselves in the same way they ought to be ashamed if they fail to thrill at the poetry of Keats, um, or Shakespeare for that matter. Uh, you know, I think that any person who wants to be a fully rounded and cultured individual ought to appreciate the poetry of science as well as the poetry of uh, literature. In fact, it's one of my pet theories uh, to digress briefly, it's one of my pet theories that one of the reasons Dawkins uh, is hated uh, by so many, uh, and particularly in some quarters, uh, is because uh, they would much rather he he be a be the caricature that they uh, draw of him. Yeah, they'd much rather he be a genuinely. Uh, Ignorant scientific boor, a scientistic um, lout spitting on the on the beauty and poetry of the world and uh, disdaining the humanities. You know, there's a certain type of beyond Ponson intellectual who it just can't help but screech the word scientism um, whenever. Uh, anything scientific that they don't like comes up. That's usually how the word scientism is used, by the way. Um, and I think 
the reason that uh, that he draws so much ire from certain types of people is because actually he is not only just a, a deeply poetic and dare I say romantic sort of person himself, uh, which is in display throughout all of his works. Uh, he is also a much more skilled and beautiful writer than. In fact, I was going to say most of, but I would, I'd, I'd, I'd quite happily put, go out on a limb and say all of his critics, every single one. Uh, he probably also has a deeper appreciation for and knowledge of uh, the uh, English lit- literary tradition. Uh, and I think that, uh, that those uncomfortable facts explain some of the, some of the uh, very irrational anger that he elicits among some. Anyway, to return to to the main uh, task of today, uh, I'd like to preface my reading with a word of warning. As you probably can tell, I'm not a professional voice artiste or uh, let alone a, a professional sound editor. I'm just doing this on my phone. Um, simply because reading aloud is something I quite enjoy. So make some allowances for that. Hopefully uh, it will still be enjoyable for you and hopefully the quality, uh, well, perhaps not uh, perfect, will be passable. Uh, hopefully it will improve over time as well. Um, I hope uh, that at least some of uh, of the books and essays and so on that I read out uh, encourage I hope my readings of them encourage uh, you to to read at least some of them. Uh, but if there is one book that you should read, it's definitely on Weaving the Rainbow. It's a truly beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and if that if that wasn't enough, it also contains one of the best uh, put downs of A. A. Gill ever put to paper, which I won't spoil for you, but you can. You can uh, search that out for yourself. There you go. If my reading doesn't inspire you to to uh, get this book and and delve into it, then hopefully that will. Um, now, anyway, I will stop waffling. I will get on with this. I'm going to read three sections of the book. Uh, not too lengthy. Uh, the first, which uh, is the is the opening and the preface. Just uh, which nicely sort of sets out the stall uh, of uh, of what he's trying to do with this book. So, without further ado, then I shall begin. A foreign publisher of my first book confessed that he could not sleep for three nights after reading it. So troubled was he by what he saw as its cold, bleak message. Others have asked me how I can bear to get up in the mornings. A teacher from a distant country wrote to me reproachfully that a pupil had come to him in tears after reading the same book because it had persuaded her that life was empty and purposeless. He advised her not to show the book to any of her friends for fear of contaminating them with the same nihilistic pessimism. Similar accusations of barren desolation, of promoting an arid and joyless message, are frequently flung at science in general, and it is easy for scientists to play up to them. My colleague Peter Atkins begins his book, The Second Law, 1984, in this vein. 
quote, We are the children of chaos, and the deep structure of change is decay. At root, there is only corruption and the unstemmable tide of chaos. Gone is purpose, all that is left is direction. This is the bleakness we have to accept as we peer deeply and dispassionately into the heart of the universe. But such a very proper purging of saccharine false purpose, such laudable tough-mindedness in the debunking of cosmic sentimentality must not be confused with a loss of personal hope. Presumably there is indeed no purpose in the ultimate fate of the cosmos, but do any of us really tie our life's hopes to the ultimate fate of the cosmos anyway? Of course we don't, not if we are sane. Our lives are ruled by all sorts of closer, warmer human ambitions and perceptions. To accuse science of robbing life of the warmth that makes it so worth living. Uh, sorry, to, to accuse science of robbing life of the warmth that make it worth living is so preposterously mistaken, so diametrically opposite to my own feelings and those of most working scientists, I am almost driven to the despair of which I am wrongly suspected. But in this book I shall try a more positive response, appealing to the sense of wonder in science, because, because it is so sad to think that to think what these complainers and naysayers are missing. This is one of the things that the late Carl Sagan did so well, and for which he is sadly missed. The feeling of odd wonder that science can give us is one of the highest experiences of which the human psyche is capable. It is a deep aesthetic passion to rank with the finest that music and poetry can deliver. It is truly one of the things that makes life worth living, and it does so, if anything, more effectively if it convinces us that the time we have for living it is finite. My title is from Keats, who believed that Newton had destroyed all the poetry of the rainbow by reducing it to the prismatic colours. Keats could hardly have been more wrong, and my aim is to guide all who are tempted by a similar view towards the opposite conclusion. Science is, or ought to be, the inspiration for great poetry, but I do not have the talent to clinch the argument by demonstration and must depend instead on more prosaic persuasion. A couple of the chapter titles are borrowed from Keats. Readers may also spot the occasional half-quotation or allusion lacing the text from him as well as others. They are there as a tribute to his sensitive genius. Keats was a more likeable character than Newton, and his shade was one of the imaginary referees looking over my shoulder as I wrote. Newton's unweaving of the rainbow led on to spectroscopy, which has proved the key to much of what we know today about the cosmos. And the heart of any poet worthy of the title romantic could not fail to leap up if he beheld the universe of Einstein, Hubble and Hawking. Okay, that ends the first uh, passage. Uh, now for the, the main event, as it were. Um, I'm going to read the first few pages of the first chapter which uh, contains opens with a truly uh, stunning paragraph uh, and a very famous one actually which i believe that dawkins plans to have read at his funeral and which i'm sure many other people uh, are also likely planning uh, this again sets out the argument uh, the purpose of the book very nicely so allons-y We are going to die, 
and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they are never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Arabia. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. In the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I and our ordinariness that are here. Moralists and theologians place great weight upon the moment of conception, seeing it as the instant at which the soul comes into existence. If, like me, you are unmoved by such talk, you still must regard a particular instant, nine months before your birth, as the most decisive event in your personal fortunes. It is the moment at which your consciousness suddenly become, became trillions of times more foreseeable than it was a split second before. To be sure, the embryonic you that came into existence still had plenty of hurdles to leap. Most conceptuses end in early abortion before their mother even knew they were there, and we are all lucky not to have done so. Also, there is more to personal identity than genes, as identical twins, who separate after the moment of fertilisation, show us. Nevertheless, the instant at which a particular spermatozoan penetrated a particular egg was, in your private hindsight, a moment of dizzying singularity. It was then that the odds against your becoming a person dropped from astronomical to single figures. The lottery starts before we are conceived. Your parents had to meet, and the conception of each was as improbable as your own, and so on back, through your four grandparents and eight great-grandparents, back to where it doesn't bear thinking about. Desmond Morris opens his autobiography, Animal Days, 1979, in characteristically arresting vein, quote, Napoleon started it all. If it weren't for him, I might not be sitting here now writing these words. For it was one of his cannonballs fired in the Peninsular War that shot off the arm of my great-great-grandfather, James Morris, and altered the whole course of my family history. Morris tells how his ancestors' enforced change of career had various knock-on effects, culminating in his own interest in natural history. But he really needn't have bothered. There's no might about it. Of course he owes his very existence to Napoleon. So do I, and so do you. Napoleon didn't have to shoot off James Morris's arm in order to seal young Desmond's fate, and yours and mine too. Not just Napoleon, but the humblest medieval peasant had only to sneeze in order to affect something which changed something else, which, after a long chain reaction, led to the consequence that one of your would-be ancestors failed to be your ancestor and became somebody else's instead. I'm not talking about chaos theory, or the equally trendy complexity theory but just about the ordinary statistics of causation. The thread of historical events by which our existence hangs is wincingly tenuous. Quote, when compared with the stretch of time unknown to us, O King, the present life of men on earth is like the flight of a single sparrow through the hall where, in winter, you sit with your captains and ministers, entering at one door and leaving by another, while it is inside as is untouched by the wintry storm. But this brief interval of calm is over in a moment, 
and it returns to the winter whence it came vanishing from your sight. Man's life is similar, and of what follows it, or what went before, we are utterly ignorant. The Venerable Bede, A History of the English Church and People, 731. This is another respect in which we are lucky. The universe is older than a hundred million centuries. Within a comparable time, the sun will swell to a red giant and engulf the earth. Every century of hundreds of millions has been in its time, or will be when its time comes, the present century. Interestingly, some physicists don't like the idea of a moving present, regarding it as a subjective phenomenon for which they find no house room in their equations. But it is a subjective argument I am making. How it feels to me, and I guess to you as well, is that the present moves from the past to the future, like a tiny spotlight inching its way along a gigantic ruler of time. Everything behind the spotlight is in darkness, the darkness of the dead past. Everything ahead of the spotlight is in the darkness of the unknown future. The odds of your century being the one in the spotlight are the same as the odds that a penny tossed down at random will land on a particular ant crawling somewhere along the road from New York to San Francisco. In other words, it is overwhelmingly probable that you are dead. In spite of these odds, you will notice that you are, as a matter of fact, alive. People whom the spotlight has already passed over, and people whom the spotlight has not reached, are in no position to read a book. I am equally lucky to be in a position to write one, although I may not be when you read these words. Indeed, I rather hope that I shall be dead when you do. Don't misunderstand me. I love life and hope to go on for a long time yet, but any author wants his works to reach the largest possible readership. Since the total future population is likely to outnumber my contemporaries by a large margin, I cannot but aspire to be dead when you see these words. Facetiously seen, it turns out to be no more than a hope that my book will not soon go out of print. But what I see as I write is that I am lucky to be alive, and so are you. We live on a planet that is all but perfect for our kind of life. Not too warm and not too cold, basking in kindly sunshine, softly watered, a gently spinning green and gold harvest festival of a planet. Yes, and alas, there are deserts and slums, there is starvation and racking misery to be found. But take a look at the competition. Compared with most planets, planets, this is paradise, and parts of Earth are still paradise by any standards. What are the odds that a planet picked at random would have these complacent properties? Even the most optimistic calculation would put it at less than one in a million. Imagine a spaceship full of sleeping explorers, deep frozen would-be colonists of some distant world. Perhaps the ship is on a forlorn mission to save the species before an unstoppable comet, like the one that killed the dinosaurs, hits the home planet. The Voyagers go into the deep freeze, soberly reckoning the odds against their spaceships ever chancing upon a planet friendly to life. If one in a million planets is suitable at best, and it takes centuries to travel from each star to the next, the spaceship is pathetically unlikely to find a tolerable, let alone safe, haven for its sleeping cargo. But imagine that the ship's robot pilot turns out to be unthinkably lucky. 
After millions of years, the ship does find a planet capable of sustaining life. A planet of equable temperature, bathed in warm starshine, refreshed by oxygen and water. The passengers, Rip Van Winkles, wake stumbling into the light. After a million years of sleep, here is a whole new fertile globe, a lush planet of warm pastures, sparkling streams and waterfalls, a world bountiful with creatures darting through alien green felicity. Our travellers walk entranced, stupefied, unable to believe their unaccustomed senses or their luck. As I said, the story asks for too much luck. It would never happen. And yet, isn't that what has happened to each one of us? We have woken after hundreds of millions of years of sleep, defying astronomical odds. Admittedly, we didn't arrive by spaceship. We arrived by being born. And we didn't burst conscious into the world, but accumulated awareness gradually through babyhood. The fact that we slowly apprehend our world, rather than suddenly discover it, should not subtract from its wonder. Of course, I'm playing tricks with the idea of luck, putting the cart before the horse. It is no accident that our kind of life finds itself on a planet whose temperature, rainfall and everything else are exactly right. If the planet were suitable for another kind of life, it is that other kind of life that would have evolved here. But we as individuals are still hugely blessed. Privileged, and not just privileged to enjoy our planet. More, we are granted the opportunity to understand why our eyes are open, and why they see what they do in the short time before they close forever. Here, it seems to me, lies the best answer to those petty-minded Scrooges who are always asking, what is the use of science? In one of those mythic remarks of uncertain authorship, Michael Faraday is alleged to have been asked what was the use of science. Sir, Faraday replied, of what use is a newborn child? The obvious thing for Faraday, or Benjamin Franklin, or whoever it was, to have meant was that a baby might be no use for anything at present, but it has great potential for the future. And I would like to think that he meant something else too. What is the use of bringing a baby into the world if the only thing it does with its life is just work to go on living? If everything is judged by how useful it is, useful for staying alive, that is, we are left facing a futile circularity. There must be some added value. At least a part of life should be devoted to living that life, not just working to stop it ending. This is how you rightly justify spending taxpayers' money on the arts. It is one of the justifications properly offered for conserving rare species and beautiful buildings. It is how we answer those barbarians who think that wild elephants and historic houses should be preserved only if they pay their way. And science is the same. Of course science pays its way, of course it is useful. But that is not all it is. After sleeping through a hundred million centuries, we have finally opened our eyes on a sumptuous planet, sparkling with colour, bountiful with life. Within decades, we must close our eyes again. Isn't it a noble and enlightened way of spending our brief time in the sun to work at understanding the universe and how we have come to wake up in it? This is how I answer when I am asked, as I am surprisingly often, why I bother to get up in the mornings. To put it the other way round, isn't it sad to go to your grave without ever wondering why you were born? Who, with such a thought, would not spring from bed, eager to resume discovering the world and rejoicing to be a part of it?
And there ends that passage. As I'm sure you will agree, uh, terribly, beautifully written, wonderfully, beautifully written. Um, it just occurred to me, actually, as I was reading that the, that last couple of paragraphs, um, that that was also um, Oscar Wilde's argument for art. All art is quite useless. Um, it is, it's the added value, the utilitarian aspect really doesn't um, matter half as much as as uh, as that piece of added value. I think elsewhere Dawkins, um, I think I think it was Dawkins or Dawkins may have been quoting somebody else, but I think he it was him who said that uh, justifying science in this way actually it might be in this book it probably is in this book, but I remember he mentions it elsewhere uh, that justifying science in such a utilitarian way is akin to uh, justifying music on the basis that it's good exercise for the violinist's uh, right arm. So I think uh, that's a nice congruence. Uh, I don't know, maybe that was an intentional allusion to Wilde's um, uh, view of art, uh, but either way, uh, a lovely congruence. Now, I'll be finishing up very shortly. There's just one other short part that I would like to read. Uh, I'd like to read the closing uh, few paragraphs. Um, yes, now I won't, I mean, a lot of this, uh, you know, comes after um, a, f- a few chapters of discussion about the um, evolution of intelligence and the constrained virtual reality that as our uh, brain, essentially, the software in our brain is a kind of virtual reality engine which uh, takes in sense data um, and produces a vision of the world uh, congruent with that. But we don't, you know, we don't see the world directly. We see uh, our brain's uh, reweaving of the world from uh, from sense data. Um, and this also allows us to simulate in our minds uh, scenarios for survival, uh, or in the case of humans, for a great uh, deal more than that. Uh, but anyway, I can't explain it half as well and do all of those ideas justice, but uh, just to give you some idea of what is being referenced in some of these final paragraphs. So here we go. I wonder whether the ability to see analogies, the ability to express meanings in terms of symbolic resemblances to other things, may have been the crucial software advance that propelled human brain evolution over the threshold into a co-evolutionary spiral. In English, we use the word mammoth as an adjective synonymous with very large. Could our ancestors break through into semantics have come when some pre-sapient poetic genius, struggling to convey the idea of large in some quite different context, hit upon the idea of imitating or drawing a mammoth? Could that have been the kind of software advance that nudged humanity into an explosion of software-hardware co-evolution? Perhaps not this particular example, because large size is too easily conveyed by the universal hand gesture beloved of boastful anglers. But even that is a software advance over chimpanzee communication in the wild. 
Or how about imitating a gazelle to mean the delicate, shy grace of a girl in a pleocene anticipation of Yeats's two girls, both beautiful, one a gazelle? How about sprinkling water from a gourd to mean not just rain, which is almost too obvious, but tears when trying to convey sadness? Could our remote habilis or erectus ancestors have imagined and momentously discovered the means to express an image like the sobbing rain of John Keats? Though, to be sure, tears themselves are an unsolved evolutionary mystery. However it began, and whatever its role in the evolution of language, we humans, uniquely among animal kind, have the poet's gift of metaphor of noticing when things are like other things and using the relation as a fulcrum for our thoughts and feelings. This is an aspect of the gift of imagining. Perhaps this was the key software innovation that triggered our co-evolutionary spiral. We could think of it as a key advance in the world simulating software that was the subject of the previous chapter. Perhaps it was the step from constrained virtual reality, where the brain simulates a model of what the sense organs are telling it, to unconstrained virtual reality, in which the brain simulates things that are not actually there at the time. Imagination, daydreaming, what-if calculations about hypothetical futures. And this, finally, brings us back to poetic science and the dominant theme of the whole book. We can take the virtual reality software in our heads and emancipate it from the tyranny of simulating only utilitarian reality. We can imagine worlds that might be, as well as those that are. We can simulate possible futures, as well as ancestral pasts. With the aid of external memories and symbol-manipulating artefacts, papers and pens, abacuses and computers, we are in a position to construct a working model of the universe and run it in our heads before we die. We can get outside the universe. I mean in the sense of putting a model of the universe inside our skulls. Not a superstitious, small-minded, parochial model filled with spirits and hobgoblins, astrology and magic, glittering with fake crocks of gold where the rainbow ends. A big model, worthy of the reality that regulates, updates and tempers it. A model of stars and great distances, where Einstein's noble space-time curve upstages the curve of Yahweh's covenantal bow and cuts it down to size. A powerful model, incorporating the past, steering us through the present, capable of running far ahead to offer detailed constructions of alternative futures and allow us to choose. Quote. Only human beings guide their behaviour by a knowledge of what happened before they were born and a preconception of what may happen after they are dead. Thus only humans find their way by a light that illuminates more than the patch of ground they stand on. P.B. and J.S. Medawar, The Life Science, 1977. The spotlight passes, but exhilaratingly, before doing so, it gives us time to comprehend something of this place in which we fleetingly find ourselves and the reason that we do so. We are alone among animals in foreseeing our end. We are also alone among animals in being able to say before we die, yes, This is why it was worth coming to life in the first place. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. John Keats, Ode to a Nightingale, 1820. 
A Keats and a Newton, listening to each other, might hear the galaxies sing. And there we go. Well, I hope you agree with me that uh, Dawkins is simply a master of prose and prose poetry. Um, And I hope that you agree with me that uh, those who don't appreciate science in this magnificent way are uh, uncultured Philistines uh, who deserve to be laughed out of the room along with uh, fools who uh, disdain uh, literature and all other forms of learning and beauty and wisdom. But uh, I don't need to waffle on uh, as I did at the start of this. I hope I didn't waffle on for too long uh, at the beginning. I think uh, the case has been made uh, much better than I could ever make it. I only wish I could write uh, as beautifully as Dawkins does. I'm sure many other people do, especially his uh, greatest enemies and critics. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed reading it, uh, as I said, hopefully. This isn't too te- uh, terrible in terms of quality, and hopefully I'm not uh, too terrible at reading aloud. Um, I shall hopefully improve on both fronts over time, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope it gave you some pleasure too. Thank you very much for listening, and have a lovely, lovely week. Goodbye. <laughs>